Welcome to Change My Mind, the show where we ask leaders about a time they changed their mind and why. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, founder and CEO of the Depolarization Project and based at Stanford in California. It's the full hosting team today. So alongside me is Laura Osborne, Director of Campaigns and Corporate Affairs at London First. Hi Ali, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing I'm doing pretty good. We've had rain in California, which has been, you know, slightly depressing and not really why I moved here. Yeah, it's not what you want, is it? No, not at all. Has it been another thrilling week on the Brexit fun ride? Do you know what? It's been pretty grey and rainy and nothing's really happening because it's half term. So it's more, you know, constant news scrolling and zero updates. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from, of course, the uh, creation of a new non-party group in British politics. So yes, it, has, it is... hasn't been without its moments of excitement. And I'm sure we'll come back to that, though not necessarily today, but another week. Um, and also with us is Alex Chesterfield, who's a conservative politician and behavioural insight expert. Hi, Alex. Hi. I think that's brilliant, by the way, the, the creation of the new group. Do you? I think it's Yeah, I think it's very brave and I think it will ignite and stimulate discussions that were needed whether or not they actually go on to set up a bigger party or recruit more MPs from other parties I think it's I think it's a really good really good start I was, I was personally quite excited by it oh I thought I was really struck by Luciana Berger's speech about how she as a Jewish woman felt she couldn't be in the Labour Party any longer mm. I found that quite affecting actually to be honest with yeah. you I hope it brings about some change. Yeah, it's just awful isn't it yeah yeah it's a low, po- a low point in British politics Yes. Party. Yeah, unfortunately, I feel there may be a few more low po- low points um, <laughs> to come <laughs> to come in the weeks ahead. And with that cheery, well, this is just going to say on that happy note. Yeah, let's move on to talking about Let's shift over the ocean and go back to our US guest. <laughs> yes, I know it's always a case of hold my beer at the minute for who's being more polarizing, and Britain's currently got the beer. Today, I'm delighted that uh, we've got a guest who rang in and joined us from DC. Laura and Alex were in the UK, and I was in California. Our guest is Marsha Chatlin, who's Associate Professor of History and African-American Studies at Georgetown University. She's the author of Southside Girls Growing Up in the Great Migration. Marsha's one of America's leading voices on the history of African-American children, race in America and social movements. In 2014, following the crisis in Ferguson, Missouri, that hit the headlines Unfortunately, around the world, as black teenager Michael Brown was shot and killed by a police officer, Marsha organised the national response in schools and colleges across America. She's a frequent public speaker, a consultant to educational institutions, and has been featured in The Atlantic.com, Time.com, Ms. Magazine, The New Yorker, MSNBC, CNN, PBS, and BBC America, where people may most recently have caught her chatting with Lucy Worsley about flaws in American history and rumours. She's a graduate of the University of Missouri-Columbia, where she was a Harry S. Truman Scholar, gained her PhD in American Civilization from Brown University, And then in 2017, she was the Eric and Wendy Schmidt Fellow at the New America Foundation, where she spent time authoring her new book, which was salivating when we talked about it, which looked at the links between fast food and race in America. If you think, like we do, that is a terrifyingly impressive CV, you will be holding on for an incredibly thought-provoking discussion that I think made all of us consider and reflect harder as we were talking than maybe any other guest has. Alex and Laura, I certainly felt that. Did you feel that too? Quite frankly, I was struggling to come back on her level. It was, you know, some of her some of her points were huge, huge on a whole other level. Yeah, and if that does feel a bit 
much or overwhelming, then we can also reassure you that on occasions we did take this down to a level with which we are all more comfortable by discussing favourite fast food, where to go and get the best stuff and Deep what to fried try chicken. and avoid. Yeah, where to get the best fried chicken and what goes on. But we encourage you to stick with this all the way through because we think it will open your mind. It certainly opened ours, as Marsha also talks about what she's changed her mind on. Marsha, welcome to Change My Mind. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thanks. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. I'd love to hear a bit more about the book that you've got that's coming out. Uh, What triggered you to write about fast food and race in America? Well, when I was in my 20s, I was very much interested in kind of health and nutrition issues. I think like a lot of people in the early 2000s, I saw the film Supersize Me about the man who ate McDonald's for 30 days and the health impacts it had on him. And as a graduate student, I ate a lot of fast food. Growing up, I ate a lot of fast food. And so I was thinking about health and nutrition And I started to read a lot of um, texts from people in the food justice movement. And while I was really moved to their commitment to reducing cruelty in the food supply and their concerns about what people ate, I often had the sneaking suspicion that people were using um, health and nutrition as a way to castigate the poor, particularly poor people of color in the way that they talked about food-related illnesses like diabetes or hypertension or heart disease and some of the implications it had for their children. And so I started to think about what if we historicize why fast food was a product that was so prevalent in certain communities and not others. And that led me on a journey to think about the relationship between food and racial justice, not in terms of the quality of food, but rather what are the conditions that limit people's food choices? And what did you find? Well, what I found was that after 1968 in the United States, as an attempt to reduce some of the tensions that had flared up around issues of police brutality, of poverty, some of the responses to the high-profile assassinations, Martin Luther King in April of 1968, and then Robert Kennedy in June of 1968, that people were finding that cities and government agencies would try to investigate, why are people so angry? Why has there not been the kind of advances in racial healing that people imagined was possible? And a large part of it had to do with the alienation of poor Black communities from the resources they needed. And so the federal government said, okay, business ownership would be the answer. And the types of businesses that the federal government supported were fast food franchises that were expanding Mm. during this time. So in this strange way, it was the search for racial justice that met this idea of business expansion that created this nutritional catastrophe in the lives of the most vulnerable. And so my research looks at what happens when our goals about reducing racism are brought in conversation with the goals of capitalism. And what I find is that this will always be an inefficient and insufficient strategy to try to heal the wounds of racism. That's very interesting. So I was just going to say, from your perspective and looking at it historically as well, what did you conclude about the links between um, 
food and turmoil and I suppose comfort also and and consequences around what that means for long-term lifestyle issues like obesity and other, um, I guess, other long-term problems related to food consumption. Well, one of the things that I've come to an understanding is that if we are concerned about the health and wellness of people, then we have to be willing to engage with the problems of capitalism, that it is an insufficient means to try to deliver justice to people, that while unemployment can be solved with jobs, they have to, um, the the approach to solving this problem has to be good quality jobs where people get Mm. good wages and good opportunities to take care of their family, that if a community is cut off from access to a grocery store and is a food desert, that fast food can't fill that void. And so one of the things that I think that the food justice movement needs to do, as well as health practitioners, is they have to look at the business climate that I think favors fast food over supermarkets. They have to be concerned about the quality of jobs that the poor have available to them, and then they can attack food choices. And so I'm making an argument that the connections that my book explores are the affective connections of the presence of fast food before thinking about the actual quality Mm. of food. Mm. Did did you find any, um, did your research look at any, uh, I guess, any success stories in terms of changing people's minds about, I guess, food that's unhealthy or changing habits? Well, what I found was that there were these moments throughout the late 60s and early 1970s where in some communities, people embraced the fast food industry because Mm -hmm. they thought this is an opportunity and we just need to capitalize it. But there are these rare moments where people say, wait a second, even though we're poor and even though we're isolated from the mechanisms of power, we need to change our perspective on what we deserve and what our community can say no to. Mm -hmm. So there's these moments in which community groups are organizing and they say no more fast food in our community. We need health centers. We need parks. We need other resources to make our community strong. But they Mm. soon realized that business outside of agitating for social change wouldn't deliver the kinds of things that they wanted to see in the world. And they became very thoughtful about how they talked about a more robust and, I guess, well-rounded approach to agitating for change. Yeah. Was there there anything similar in the characteristics of these kinds of communities that... um, I guess, took, took this more holistic or different view of, of the effects of um, these fast food change or setting up these fast food change in their communities? I think it, were, it was communities that did not believe a dominant narrative about their strength or their power. So mm. uh, I talk about one community in Philadelphia where people say, just because we're working class people, just because we don't have the power of affluent people in other parts of the city, it doesn't mean that we don't care about our own community. And it doesn't mean that we don't care about our children. And I think that's a really kind of powerful way of asserting the various ways that um, we can recognize how power operates. And so Mm. throughout the 70s, affluent communities in uh, New York City and uh, Palm Beach, Florida, and um, 
you know, uh, Martha's Vineyard, they were successful in keeping fast food out because they were wealthy and they could appeal to politicians and corporations listened to their concerns. But for these poor communities, they found that their numbers came in in recognizing their economic impact through boycott, as well as reminding other people in their community that they deserved more or better than what the fast food industry was suggesting that they deserved. Mm. I'm curious, Marsha, kind of, I suppose, how much do you think the lessons that those communities had when they spoke up and they tried to bring about change, how much are they reflected in how America could now approach solving some of its polarization problems? Well, I think that one of the things that um, we can think about in terms of these movements to kind of keep up business from overstepping its boundaries or exploiting or hurt people is that um, some of the coalition building happens when people can come to agreements about what's most important to them. I really do believe that people are always trying to get their needs met. And if people are unsure if they can eat the next day, then you have to provide a structure where you can say, no, we will make sure you are fed. And if people are concerned that they will lose their jobs because they participate in social action, there has to be a mechanism that says, we can help take care of you as you look for the next job, or maybe we can provide the employment you need. And so I think that by studying this period of time, I think that what is lost sometimes in our most contentious issues is we lose sight of the fact that everyone is trying to get a need met. And we need more examples of communities that are able to take care of each other because they recognize those needs first and foremost. I completely agree with you. I think probably all three of us would. And one thing that I think is probably worth highlighting for our listeners who aren't in America, and you very kindly explained the significance of some dates already, um, is the degree of change that's happened fairly recently in America about um, uh, you know, kind of race equality. So it was, you know, it's within living memory for quite a, a lot of people that segregation in schools still existed or where interracial marriage was um, illegal in Virginia Island. That was really very recent that, that some of that changed. And clearly, you know, the civil rights movement has been reasonably effective at bringing about and influencing that and helping people change their minds. I guess what I I really wanted to ask is if there's any lessons you think from the that movement that could be applied to present day America or, or the UK actually as well for that extent. Well, I mean, I think that this is a this is a great question and it's so poignant to answer because what happened in the United States as a result of the civil rights movement is that some people did change their minds, but I think what changed um, probably in a more influential direction is that people changed their mechanisms of discrimination. And so while it's not legal to discriminate in some of these public services, um, some communities got very savvy and found other ways to Um, maintain or exacerbate discrimination. And so I think what's happened in this nation is that 
people have become very creative in their tools of exclusion. And some people have realized that exclusion is wrong. And I think that our nation is in a struggle to determine who was right in their interpretation of change. I think that what we can learn is that we can have massive change in this country and people can change their minds, but what they have to have is an environment in which changing your mind doesn't leave you feeling um, desperate and it does not leave you feeling alone and isolated. I think the many reasons why um, there are Americans who hold on deeply to their sense of racism and their desire for separation is that they realize that if they challenge that, they lose their connections to their family, their friends, their community, their churches. And so for many people in the dominant paradigm, they don't change, not because um, they think that it's right. I think that there are a lot of people who are really morally opposed to racism and its excesses, but they lack any assurance that if they were to turn their back on that way of thinking or that way of living, that they would have a more just and a more beautiful community to embrace them. And so I think the lesson from this time period is for people to look at the dynamics of communities that were formed on the principle of anti-racism and the wonderful things that emerged from those communities as a result of making that choice. Marsha, do you have any examples of the uh, those creative tools of uh, exclusion that you mentioned so people that perhaps oh, yeah. haven't haven't changed their minds yeah can you, can you would you be great just to hear a few examples so um so one of the kind of most powerful tools against um you know integrating schools is just to create new school districts um this is a frequent problem in the united states where um alliances will form for um, you know, white parents with a little bit of means to just create entirely new school districts or to redraw the boundaries um, so that um, racially mixed schools or schools that perhaps are majority African-American, they don't feed into their high schools or into their middle schools. Um, I think education has been one of the places where people have been the most um, enthusiastic, uh, for lack of a better word, in thinking about tools of, of either resegregation or keeping at bay any meaningful integration. So I think that um, we see that for a long time in this country with housing, that, you know, people will um, make financial sacrifices, they will disconnect from the communities that they're from the second that there's any indication that the racial dynamics will shift. And so I think what we have in this country is on one hand, a set of laws that suggest that discrimination will not be tolerated, but then we have a set of practices that have been deemed legal in the courts um, that are done to circumvent uh, the strength of those laws. Mm, so you have this gap between the law and, and what actually happens in, in practice. Mm-hmm. Mm. You don't sound terribly optimistic about change. Is that a fair reflection? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if... Um, I, if I if I um, if I was not optimistic about change, then I wouldn't be an educator. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that um, I think that teaching is probably the closest thing um, to the magic, you know, the magic pill 
um, that allows people to change their minds. Um, I have seen incredible transformation in the sense of perspective, as well as the sense from many of my students that we have power to actually change things. What I'm not optimistic about is the way that the dominant um, narrative about history has convinced people that the problems of racial injustice are in the past. And so my optimism or my sense of hope, if if one is to have that, um, comes from the fact that I see a lot of young people who are curious if another world is possible. And then they take that curiosity and they apply it into the world so that schools are not um, determined in quality by the wealth of the people who attend it, that people who have been isolated from the healthcare system can get loving and nurturing care. You know, I know young people around the country who are making sure that healthy food is available to communities that are often ignored by uh, grocery stores. So I see it every day, the transformative power of change. And at the same time, I also see a concerted effort to try to convince people that change isn't possible. Okay. Uh, Just talking of being a teacher, has there been a point when your students have made you change your mind on anything? Absolutely. I think the, when I was a little bit younger in my profession, I was susceptible to some of the kind of negative attitudes towards young people. And it, it is often animated by, I think our own, um, our own discomfort with aging. And so, you know, when someone would say, I tried to hire, you know, a 22 year old to do this job and they weren't able to do it. And they, you know, they're so self-absorbed or they don't have this or that skill. I was kind of apt to listen and maybe say, yeah, you know, the kids these days, even though I don't think I'm that old, but um, I think I was a little (laughs) less, um, I think I was a little less sensitive to how destructive that way of thinking is. Um, to be impatient or intolerant that a young person is still trying to discern who they are in the world and that the conditions in which I came of age, um, that they have to be the same as the ones that my students come of age in. I think I was a little, um, I think I was a little inflexible in thinking about why it's so important um, to really, um, to really be open to generational um, differences and to really embrace those differences and see the value in it. And so I think over the years, I've changed my mind in terms of understanding the importance of accepting young people as the young people they are, not the young people I wish they were and not the young person I was. And I think once I started to do that, I could be more loving and more trusting and more invested in helping um, my students and other, you know, um, young people that I mentor in determining what the world should look like for them and not how the world looked like for me. No, I, I completely agree with you. And there is something disconcerting about it being to do with age and suddenly realizing that you're not a young person anymore. You know, sometimes I look at the charts and I actually have no idea who a single person is. <laughs> I think we've made a few times we've had a chat between the three of us about having reached a certain age where, you know, you sort of find yourself saying, oh, millennials, you know, and you're like, oh, oh, that means I'm old. <laughs> 
means that that means that my frame of reference is changing and we had another guest on um john height who who called us all girls and you know we paused for a minute to wonder whether or not to be offended and then i think between us we're all quite pleased that someone might still think that was the case i was hugely flattered (laughs) yeah also although given that marsh is in america and john was like no no you can't do that here it's one of those things that does not cross the atlantic very well um, I think, would you get away with calling someone girls in class, Marsha? Um, I, I, I don't do it. Um, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I just, I, I can hear it, the I, pain in your voice. Yeah. <laughs> no. And, and I think, and I think that there's so many other, there's so many contexts in which that's fine. You know, girls and guys, or, you know, tell me about the girls in your class, I think is fine. Um, I do think that, and and along those same lines about changing our mind, understanding that um, the key to not offending people is to spending time building an intimacy and trust with them. So Mm -hmm. that if someone that is close to me says, you know, girls your age, and I know that it's coming from a place where they respect and understand my complexity, then I'm not offended. I think what happens often is that sometimes in like the workplace or even in the classroom, someone doesn't spend the time to cultivate the relationship and they want it to be very close or very personal, very fast. And I think this is where people bristle. Um, And I also am very aware of just how self-conscious my students can be about this phase of life. Um, They want people to take them seriously. I, I, the, my, um, the version of this when I call students like my baby PhDs or like, oh, my baby grad students. And I don't mean that in any kind of rude or diminutive way, but I'm very careful not to say that to a new graduate student. You know, a student I've worked with for five or six years and say, oh my gosh, I'm so proud of my baby PhDs. They understand that I mean that in terms of like, I've mentored you and I've seen you through all of this. But if it's a student I'm just meeting, I would not refer to them as one of my baby PhDs. (laughs) I I was just saying, if I was lucky enough to be one of your PhDs, you could call me baby PhD anytime you wanted. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be really delighted. But I, I... I totally get that this point in the aging process and I've always struck me as really interesting that, um, you know, particularly younger women are encouraged often to dress older so that they're taken serious, more seriously. And now I am slightly older. I mean, I'm 36, but uh, like I suddenly want to look younger again. And I slightly regret ever throwing away that youth by trying to look as if I was in my 40s when it probably looked ridiculous as well. Yeah, and I think and I think this is something that I've probably um changed and evolved on over the years about what does it mean for someone else to think of you as powerful. And I think that you're absolutely right. I think when you start working in your late 20s, your early 30s, you want people to take you seriously. And now I I can see that in my journey, um I just want people to see me as kind. I really do. And I don't think it undermines my power and I don't think it undermines my power as a woman. But I think more than anything else, I want the people who I spend time with to understand that there's so many different ways to be powerful and that I like the fact that my power comes from um, a commitment to intellectual honesty as well as kindness. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's hard to unlearn because we have these models of power that are not just kind of... um, you know, not just aggressive, but are very cruel. 
I think that in this country, in the United States, we are in an age of cruelty. And so I think the thing that I have probably shifted the most on is to think about the radical potential of kindness. I think we touched on some of that a little with Shannon Downey, who runs the craftivism approach. And we were talking about how, you know, spending time with people and understanding them, and then that enables you to have a much deeper and broader conversation. Do you think that's applicable to the ongoing discussions in America around polarization and tension and race in particular? Yeah, so I think it's two things. I think it's um I think it's kindness and accountability. And I think people really struggle with these two things because for some people they don't experience it in their own lives, right? So mm. I really do believe that, you know, people with um power to vote um either candidates who will care for people or not you know, people who have political ideologies that are based on isolating themselves from people who are different, I find that intolerable because it's painful. And Mm -hmm. I think that if we are to build a healthy democracy, that we have to approach these people in a spirit of accountability, as well as in the spirit of love. And so I don't believe that you have to accept every idea because it's someone's idea. And I don't think people have the right to believe, you know, whatever they want and then apply it in the world because some ideas really harm and other ideas help. But I do think that what we don't have enough of is a framework of accountability that isn't so deeply punitive and isolating that people are afraid of admitting when they're wrong or imagining that they can be bigger than their biggest mistake. And I think that um, I have no desire to see people punished, shamed, and isolated from the world. But I do think that there are a number of people who have never had the opportunity for accountability because they either have so much power, they are never confronted with the harm that they do, or the only way that they can imagine having power is to harm others. And so I think that I'm an advocate for us to kind of take a step back and really imagine what a world of loving accountability looks like. And I think that there are few models of it. And this is why I think that this nation will always be plagued by its original sins of slavery and colonialism and abuse, because there is no way that you can admit you're wrong or admit the ways that you benefit from and still can't imagine yourself to be loved and cared for after you do that. And Marsha, is this um, isolation and, and punishment that you you talk about? Is that is that um, is that linked to this this age of cruelty that you describe? I think it's I think it's um, I think it's linked to um, the kind of the world that you know believes that if a person is in a prison, then they don't deserve heat that starving um, people as a technique to get information to them is okay. Mm. That if people are seeking asylum at the border, you can remove them from their children to teach them a lesson. And so I think what happens as a result is this age of cruelty um, is one in which people want to see more punishments and harsh harsher punishments to the people who are the most vulnerable, right? So it goes beyond this idea that um, if a person breaches this idea of a border that they're detained, like that's not enough. They mm-hmm. have to be detained 
in um, a cell with no air conditioning. They have to be fed food that is spoiled, that they can be sexually abused and there's no recourse, right? And Mm. so it's this constant mechanism that looks at the disciplinary norms of some of our cruelest institution and then suggests that they should be crueler. Mm. Is this a recent thing, this age of cruelty, or have we always been like that and this is just, I guess, an increasing trend or upwards trajectory? I would say we're just in another epic, another uh, version of it. Mm. Um, so that, you know, the age of cruelty, I would say, um, for a time where we've readjusted some norms. And so I, I think of it as kind of a pendulum that swings in a number of directions. I think mm. it's interesting that, you know, within a few years of the Supreme Court finally saying, you know what, juvenile offenders shouldn't get temporary isolation or um, solitary confinement, rather, right? Like, we shouldn't put children in solitary confinement. That is wrong. So we live in a world that can support that idea. And then at the same time, we can say children can be separated from their parents at the border because they're not citizens of our state. And so I think it is always this push and pull between compassion and a desire to kind of re-inscribe that pain. One of the most touching... um, interviews I've ever seen in media is by Brian Stevenson, who's the head of the Equal Justice Initiative, who has devoted, you know, his legal career to getting um, people who were on death row on wrongful convictions exonerated. And Mm. I show my students this interview, I did it today, in which he talks about a memorial to lynching that um, the initiative was part of. And it's a it's a memorial to people who are victims of the racial terror that was socially acceptable in this country into the 1950s. And one of the things he says is, you know, after we stopped lynching in this country, we just took it indoors and it became the death penalty. And that Mm. is one of the most powerful things that I've ever heard because it's a clear recognition that we don't take progress for granted. What we have to do is be ever vigilant that when the cruelty goes behind closed doors, when we can no longer see it in the public square, we have to become that much more committed to eradicating it. Mm. And talking of this um, age of cruelty and how to deal almost, I guess, with, with forgiveness or not. I mean, I know in our brief, we gave you an example of what's happening at the minute in Virginia, but there's maybe been a more pertinent one that I know Laura was talking to me about this week. And I, I don't know if you're, or have kept up with Marsha, the, the debate around Liam Neeson and Mm -hmm. the stories that he's told this week. And I I don't want to steal Laura's question, but (laughs) but sort of any thoughts or, or how you interpreted that and the reactions to it. I mean, I think that this is a classic example of a person who is telling a story that's so outside of a context. That story, the story itself, or or what he did itself, isn't this, I think, for me, the source of um, the tension. The source of the kind of frustration is for someone to tell that story and not understand the incredible impact um, that that attitude and behavior could have Mm. in the world. Because what he's talking about, right, this idea that a person is harmed. And so without any kind of clear information about who did the harm, the exact person, that this person will then um, seek out people who could stand in as a proxy for someone who harmed someone else. 
as someone who was currently this week teaching about the history of lynching in America, this was the heart of racial terrorism in this country for decades, that it didn't matter the specifics of who committed a breach, that just the possibility it could have happened, the rumor it could have happened, um, led people to burn down entire towns, that led people to take the lives of people's children. And so it's that lack of consciousness that Liam Neeson tells this story, and it's the lack of kind of historical awareness and and weight in which he tells this story that is, I feel like, the source of some of the response. Um, because he has been able to live in a world where the gravity of what he is saying um, has never been made real to him. And it's, it's, this is the place where um, I think the reaction comes from, but I think um, without a kind of clear sense of that history, people can say, well, everyone's overreacting. He didn't end up beating anyone to death. Why are people so sensitive? But it shows us that we're not even starting from the same kind of knowledge Mm. base or the same understanding or relationship to histories of violence. And then we try to engage in a conversation and it all seems like cacophony or noise. But what it is, is the fact that um, we live in a world that that based on your race or your gender expression or various levels of your identity you see the world from a different perspective. And one of the hardest things is then having someone um, uh, not be able to even imagine that your perspective is possible. Yeah, I think the reason I I mentioned it to Ali is that I was thinking about it from the perspective that he just dropped it into an interview without seeming to give a lot of consideration whilst promoting a film. And so I thought, you know, to be surprised by the reaction... (laughs) is a real showing that there's a, as you say, a total absence of context and, and and understanding and feeling to the impact of that type of view. Um, so I think that, as you said, that was the bit that really surprised me when I first heard about it. I was like, well, but it's so, um, so symbolic of not being part of a wider community. <laughs> I mean, I think it's something that that I, yeah, I mean, it's something I talk about with my husband sometimes. And he says, you know, I don't think um, men realize the extent that many women are socialized to be afraid of men. Mm. Right. I think that, I mean, this is part one of the consequences of the specter of sexual violence, right. As a form of um, attack, as a form of humiliation for so many women. And so that, you know, sometimes he says, if I'm walking down the street and I'm walking behind a woman, I'll cross the street because I realize I could be scaring her or creeping her out. And that, of course, is my intent. I'm not going to do anything to her. But I understand that this is the world in which women inhabit. And so I think that this is the place where the powerful connection can come from. If the number of people who are so resistant to listening to women understood the incredible unintentional power they have to scare and discipline them, then maybe they would take a step back and think about a world that creates those dynamics. Um, Very few people, I think, do that. And then even fewer people can actually be um, honest about that, right? And so once you admit that, right, if, if Liam Neeson said, I potentially could have done something so terrible and I... I could be scary to someone and that wasn't my intent or I so mismanaged my anger and frustration that I did this thing 
And I realized, boy, look at this incredible power I had and how I could have abused it. That's a very different conversation. And I think the casual way in which he told that story really highlights um, just how far we have to come. And I think that we need more examples like that for people to take a step back and say, okay, what are we really reacting to? And I think we're reacting to the deep separation that keeps his narrative alive in one part of the world and then the stories of other people alive in a different part of the world. I'm slightly lightening the mood a bit, but I think our listeners might not forgive me if having spent a while talking about fast food, we didn't ask you how much you had eaten in the course (laughs) of your research. And if you actually had any preferences or recommendations for for people as a consequence. (laughs) So I have eaten every fast food in the world. I don't eat a lot of it now because I'm of an age where fast food Um, upsets my stomach. So I don't eat it very often. But when I do, um, you know, it's funny, I was in the UK. uh, Was it last year? And I I was like going to eat at all the places I enjoyed when I was a student. They weren't as good as I remember them. But I do like, um, I do like uh, Nando's isn't really fast food. It's more fast casual. So I do like fast casual. Um, I think that McDonald's still probably has the best French fries of everyone, um, mm-hmm. though I haven't eaten it in years. Um, Wendy's, I believe, is quite good. Um, I think uh, it's funny. Uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken is very, very popular globally, but Popeye's is better. Um, I don't think that any of the fast food Mexican restaurants are very good because they're not. <laughs> um, and I was in Finland and I had Hesburger. Not my favorite. <laughs> I get you might. I don't know if you're aware of this story that last year Kentucky Fried Chicken in the UK had like this global logistics or this logistics meltdown that meant there was no KFC across the country <laughs> for like chicken. three yeah. days and all hell broke. What? There was uproar. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's 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 weird. Chicken is an easier product to import because there are fewer countries that have restrictions on eating chicken. And fried chicken is a, a dish that's served a lot in like Southeast Asia. And so people like can't get enough of KFC. The, um, one of my colleagues um, who's also writing about fast food, Alex Park, he you know, told me some statistic that like a quarter of all chickens in the world are being fried by KFC or some really high number. Um, so, but when I go to, when I travel, I like to try a local fast food company. And so, um, I think I, I, I can't think of any. For research purposes um, only, obviously. Oh, for, I'll try it once. And, you know, usually it's like really dreadful, but I like have to do it. <laughs> it, it feels like a terrible duty to do that. Um, so really Marshall, we do ask every guest um, about an issue that they changed their mind on. And I, I'd love to hear what yours is. Um, what have I changed my mind on? I think I changed my mind on capitalism. <laughs> I think that um, growing up in the United States, I think that very early on you become, you know, kind of uh, inured to the idea that if you work hard, you earn money, you deserve the things you get and you kind of, you know, you buy stuff at the mall with your friends and you learn that capitalism is the way to go. Um, But I think that the more I became immersed in the study of, of, um, slavery and the study of Jim Crow and the study of segregation and the study of how race overdetermines one's lifetime, that I think I have changed my mind about capitalism 
And I have an appreciation for the incredible work of groups like the Socialist um, Democrats of America and other people who are really pushing the idea that another way is possible. Um, you know, when it's so funny, you know, after Obama was elected, everything was considered socialist in the United States, which is ridiculous. Um, but I am really heartened by a young group of activists who are trying to rethink how we ensure we live in a world where everyone's needs can be met. And so while I don't think I was, um, you know, a free market capitalist ever because I don't have enough money to be, um, I do <laughs> think that what I've changed my mind on is I have a deeper appreciation for people who are trying to be creative and how we ensure that, you know, we don't exacerbate inequality and that we actually close the gap. Thank you so much for joining us, Marsha. That was incredible. Alex and Laura, how did how did you feel in that interview? I felt stretched and terrified and enlightened. Yeah, I think pretty much the same, to be honest, Ali. I think it's uh it's such a different perspective from the one, you know, very personally that I grew up with. Um, I felt like it really made me stop and think about all of the uh, not just sort of day-to-day challenges caused by racism and inequality, but the kind of sheer institutionalised nature of so many of them as well. It gave me significant pause for thought. Ali, what about you? What about you? Yeah, I felt so much since I moved out here, like how narrow my own experience was when I grew up. You know, I grew up in rural Gloucestershire and rural Wales, which for our um, US listeners just take it that they're not terribly ethnically diverse. Um, And, you know, there was maybe one or two people in the school who weren't white and one or two people who maybe weren't Christian um, or like lapsed Christian in some form or other. And I realised how much that experience, while obviously completely valid, meant that I wasn't able to relate to to others and to some of the hardships or institutionalized racism, you know, like no one ever looked at me and judged me differently there because of my white skin, because, because everybody was white pretty much. And, um, you come here and you can't help, but, you know, I touched on it in the piece, like the recency and the institutionalized nature of racism in across America, but really in some pockets quite deeply is, is really troubling and it makes me realise that I should never use myself as a base of normal and to anchor other people's experience. I think that, and that's really hard, like you have to work really hard to be able to do that, but that's my job to do it. Alex, I, I don't know, because you grew up in a slightly more, uh, Laura and I were were chatting and had, you know, we both had similar slightly monocultural backgrounds, but you were a bit more diverse, weren't you? I went to my local Catholic primary school, so there were children there from a really wide variety of, of backgrounds. But that said, I was still in a majority, so I can't can't say I can equate to, to what Marsha is talking about and what she's experienced and, and communities, uh, other communities, like communities in America. I do think, though, some of her points around these deep... Uh, you know, kind of systemic problems and 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 deep rooted inequalities were kind of similar to John Haidt. So it was a, it was a different um, 
again, from a very different perspective and different argument, but touching on a similar problem about how, you know, how do, how do we make these changes? How do we shift them? But for what, what really interested me in her, um, in her interview was this, this gap that she highlights between practice and the law uh, and, and what might come first. So when I think, you know, working in behaviour change, it's um, it's interesting to think actually to what extent does the law change behaviour and and over what time span, you know, what time frame. So for me that, that was really, really interesting and really thought-provoking. Come on, I think if you think about seatbelts, drink driving, you know, lots of the major changes, they started... <coughs> Did they start with the law or was there a shift first culturally that the law then responded to, which then creates more of a response in the public? Yeah, and I think I think you're right, um, but also about laws have to have people's respect. And where she was talking about people just found their ways around them, yeah. you know, and found creative ways to be discriminatory in effect rather than actually change their mind. I think that's the thing that really struck struck me is that the discrimination moves or it takes a different form that you are um sort of running after it if you like um trying to legislate to stop it but it will come it you know the martian spirits it comes back and it it, it permeates in a different way yeah it's a good point actually because because i guess examples like drink driving uh, public opinion was very much in support of that you know there were very few detractors weren't there whereas I guess it's just a it's just a very different issue, isn't it? Race racism about how you know. Yeah, and it's, a, it's, find... a, it's a it's a deep intractable social problem. Can to what you know to what extent can you mm-hmm. resolve that through through the law? Yeah, and I think I find I find it really interesting how some institutions just picked it up, and ones to me that you know it's really disappointing that this is what happened. So like the. YMCA, which I think of mainly as somewhere that I would go and do youth hostling, right? In when I was hiking in the in the UK, um, or get access to cheap gyms. In the US, they basically, you know, after it was it was said that that black people had to be allowed to use local authority owned swimming pools. Well, in effect, everybody transferred their membership to the YMCA. And until 1970, when there was a court case saying that they had to open them up as well to black people. And that was how they'd continued to have that segregation. And 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 to me, I find it really crazy that an institution that I hold in very different regard, like institutionalized racism, even after the state had said it was basically illegal. You know, I find that you're right, Alex, uh, Laura, it's just like it just it just zips off to another point. And how do you yeah, how do you are they actually are we actually changing anybody's mind? Do people change? Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? I also thought it was really interesting, the point um, that we touched on with Marsha about food, too, and where the kind of debates ended up on obesity and the sort of blaming people um, for a, you know, and I think I think we see that in a, in a non-race, but perhaps um, almost division in societal sort of way in the UK, where people are, are sort of held accountable. But actually, there are elements of the way um, the relationship with food has been set up and the access to, you know, who runs what restaurants and who does what things that means you have a prevalence of obesity amongst certain people or, um, you know, a lack of access to better sort of quality food. And, you know, the, the fact that there is a, a, a sort of... Um, 
a, a prejudice, if you like, at that level too, I thought was really interesting. It's not something I'd ever given a lot of thought to before. Yeah, and I find, you know, it's all part of the problems of our intellectual shortcuts that we take or non-intellectual shortcuts. It's probably the better way to do it. Um, and how you associate people with visual cues. Um, and a slightly more lighthearted note, mm. like uh, I know you guys are thinking of coming out here and, and seeing me and there's a uh, a fast food chain called In-N-Out Outburger on the West Coast of the States, which is pretty good <laughs> and reasonably healthy and has a very short menu, very interestingly. That, but they have this secret menu on the side that if you're a local, you know about. And cool. you can ask for... Yeah, I know, I know. Except obviously I like messed up when I try to order. You can order animal fries, which is basically like cheese and mayo and onions on top of things. And like, it's really tasty and very nice. But I was like, I am in on this. I know how to do it with my very British accent. And I wandered up and I asked for some jungle fries instead. And this guy was like, do you you mean animal fries are you trying to be cool <laughs> and I was like yeah please can I have can those I, still have <laughs> I, I nearly understand your culture slightly <laughs> and go from there but um there's quite a lot of secret menus it's more of a US thing than a UK thing but um yeah if people I've never heard that yeah yeah. yeah 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 it's pretty neat. well we just ask for a bit of cheeseburger or no gherkin and get happy right um, yeah <laughs> and go from there but yeah it's it's a lovely little twist and quirk and I actually I now I'm thinking about it a bit more I wonder how much some of that might have come out from meals or menus I wish we'd asked Marsha that were designed potentially for audiences that weren't always that culturally sensitive to some of their backgrounds and I mean that in terms of there might be different types of food or exchange that people want that they could add and enhance and that's where the secret burgers came secret some of the secret recipes came from rather than just a a marketing trick it would sort of make sense interesting yeah we should have asked yes. <laughs> I know but with, with that diversion into slightly easier like there were moments when I was like I need to take a break from how meta we're feeling we should maybe go back to exactly where where Marsha um finished to conclude our discussion which was about the failings of capitalism and she said like you ask academics to think big and they go big and my word was it better yeah I, that was controversial for me given well i started to read steve pinker's book recently and he showcases or highlights all this data these metrics showing that in multiple different ways as i said on the interview multiple different ways so in education poverty age you know how long we live for all these things are going up in a, in a in a positive direction and a lot of that is attributed to capitalism and it's still the best the best way to alleviate and lift out most people from poverty so for me that was that was um like a point of contrast but her her view and I guess her argument that it's it's that yes we have these we have this data we have this we have these metrics but actually I guess the lived experience of a lot of people does not equate to that was was really, yeah, really powerful. Well, and I think if you're really struggling and you're seeing other people doing a lot better, because I mean, that's part of Pinker's argument as well, isn't it? That, you know, even though it causes inequality, relative inequality to increase, it lifts everybody from the bottom. But like, that must be, <laughs> that must be a really hard thing. Like, I'm not sure how much comfort you get from the fact, well, well, things were worse 200 years ago. You know, I don't find that <laughs> very reassuring as a woman. Like, oh, well, Alex, we'll just open up with bits of discrimination that comes our way. Um, aren't, we, aren't we glad that we're not being, you know, branded witches and sunk out? Barry St Edmunds. Yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah, maybe the idea is just to aim a bit higher. <laughs> 
what the, the not being not being identified as a witch. And, <laughs> not being a witch. But yeah. burn at the stake if you can swim and, and drowning if you can't. Yeah. 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 Pretty much. Uh, but you know, it did yeah. make me think one of the other things, just quickly, that Marsha touched on, though, which I thought was was really um thoughtful too, is that also you can only really um change how you view things and change how you interact with people if there's somewhere else for you to go um and I thought I thought that was really interesting that you rely on there being another sort of group of people to welcome you it's almost circling back to the the whole political debate that we started with you know that it's very hard to if you've grown up inside a family that thinks one thing very strongly or has a very strong prejudice it's very hard to go it's somewhere else unless there is somewhere else for you to go otherwise you are just on your own and and how you know in her view that that limits the number of people who break away from their very strong beliefs and you know i think um as we said, we've certainly seen some of that in in politics. It's raised some interesting questions. I think with the the sort of independent group of MPs as well, in terms of they've they've created another group to go to. You know, you don't want people don't want or seem to want to do it on their own or confront things on their own necessarily. No, well, that's that's really tough. Um, and go from there, Alex. Do you have any final thoughts? Yes, only only that I wish I could have done her interview and almost asked her a question, paused for about an hour, have a very deep <laughs> think and big chat, and then started again. So the whole thing would have probably lasted a day. Uh, but yeah, it, it just made me feel very. I need to. I need to get more world experience. Think basic. Well, read more. Think more. Go out and talk to more people. Get out of Surrey in the UK. Yeah. Well, and I think that's probably what. It left everyone thinking, and I hope I really felt that she was welcoming to encourage people in. I, you know, I would I'd go and spend more time with Marsha just listening to her. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, and if our listeners would also like to spend more time listening or reading what Marsha's talked about, then there'll be uh, bits and pieces on our website to signpost you to that. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed the show and listening to her today and found it as wonderfully challenging and thought provoking as we did we'd like to thank as always caroline crampton our wonderful producer open democracy for sharing this with our many readers kevin mcleod whose music you'll hear as the intro and outro to find out uh, more about us go to depolarizationproject.com or follow us on twitter at depolproject thanks for listening <laughs>